You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to Yahweh, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried, all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to Yahweh. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to Yahweh, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or his mother, For brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to Yahweh. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to Yahweh for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb, a year old, for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. And this is the law for the Nazarite, When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to Yahweh, one male lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a sin offering, and one ram, without blemish, as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering, and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before Yahweh, and offer his sin offering, and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to Yahweh, with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering, and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head, and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram, when it is boiled, and one unleavened loaf out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite, after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before Yahweh. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, And after that the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to Yahweh above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford, in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, 
speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 622 of this podcast. That was Numbers chapter 6, talking about the Nazarite vow and what all pertains to that. You know, it's a funny thing. The Nazarite business has always been a little bit of a head-scratcher. When I hear very conservative, very clean-cut Christians criticizing long hair on a man, So what you'll hear if you listen to very conservative American Christians sometimes is you will hear joking, sneering, mocking of men who have man buns. If a man has long hair, it's shameful. And to some extent, you might be able to say 1 Corinthians 11 is relevant here. There's this question in verses 2 through 16 of that chapter in the New Testament, of whether men or women should pray with their head covered. And some people say, this is talking about hair for men and hair for women. And some people say this is talking about wearing a hat. I'll read the passage for you in the ESV and we'll see, shall we? Now I commend you, Paul writes, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, what's this about, right? What is this about and how does it relate to what I just read for you at the top of the episode from Numbers chapter 6? I can't see this any other way except then that there are exceptions. There are rules and there are exceptions. Now, the fact that there can be exceptions does not mean that there are not rules and vice versa. 
just because there's a rule. That doesn't mean that there are no exceptions. You can have exceptions to the rule. And in the case of the Nazarite vow, it certainly does seem as though an exception is made because the Nazarite is growing his hair out long. Samson in the book of Judges is a Nazarite. In fact, that's the secret to his great strength. He loses his extraordinary strength from God when he is shaved, when his hair is cut short. He was not a short-haired guy. He was a long-haired guy. But if you fast forward to the gospel account, we find that John the Baptist is also a Nazarite. And so John the Baptist has long hair and also doesn't have anything to do with grapes. No wine, no strong drink, no alcohol of any kind. But that is to say, too, that it was exceptional for somebody to just absolutely abstain from alcohol. And typically, the very conservative Christians who will criticize long hair on a man in any case will say also, or they're more likely to say, that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol. Now, there are definitely exceptions, and this is on a denomination-by-denomination basis. But Baptists, for instance, a conservative Baptist here in America, will typically, in my experience growing up in a lot of Baptist churches, they will typically say men should have their hair cut short, they should dress nice for church, and they shouldn't have anything to do with alcohol. And I say, well, when you get to the Nazarites, you get a little bit of trouble in both directions. One, because... Here's an exception to the rule as far as long hair goes. Two, here is the exception to the rule with regards to the consumption of alcohol. Because it's not everybody. If the standard were everybody is supposed to abstain from alcohol, then it would not be special that the Nazarites are abstaining from alcohol. But of course it is special. But then 1 Corinthians 11 is also just a very fascinating passage to consider along the lines of what we talked about here in yesterday's episode. For instance, in Numbers chapter 5, we've got this whole test for adultery business, but it's not egalitarian. It is not as though the husband and the wife are interchangeable. So also in 1 Corinthians 11, as many other places, the husband and the wife are not interchangeable. They really aren't. What is permissible in the one direction is shameful in the other direction, What is shameful in one direction is permissible in the other direction, like, for instance, having the head covered. And what's curious about this, this is a head scratcher, and I think it's an example of not necessarily us having no idea how to live a good godly life in the American church today. I'm not suggesting that. I don't mean to imply that, but it is proof. It's a simple proof that a lot of what we do, a lot of our standard practice is driven by what is cultural. And to some extent, that can be okay, I guess, but we shouldn't invalidate the commands of God or the authority of Scripture based on the traditions of men. Jesus has very stern warnings for the religious leaders that he confronts in the gospel accounts over doing exactly that thing making the commands of God invalid or count for nothing thanks to an overzealous attention to the traditions of man. We can do that too. And it's going to look very different than it would for a Jew in the first century AD. 
But head coverings, I only know of one gal, a friend of my wife's and mine, Meg Dickey, a conservative Lutheran woman, of all things, who wears a head covering and her daughters, they wear head coverings. And we've talked about it before. She's not legalistic about it. She's not unpleasant. She's not a severe woman. In fact, she's a very, I would say, gregarious, pleasant sort, well-read, intelligent, resourceful, Meg Dickey. But she looks at this passage here in 1 Corinthians 11. And she says, you know, I think I can't in good conscience just ignore this. And I say, you know what? I can't in good conscience criticize you. And yes, it does look unusual because who among the women our day, who, who among the women of our day is wearing a head covering as a sign of submission to their husband? I know of one. I know lots of people. I know of one woman who has her head covered. And I'm not, I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying this is upsetting to me, but I'm saying it is a curious thing. It's a curious thing that here we have what Paul says. And we do, <laughs> we do typically expect that men will take their hat off in church generally and some very conservative, again, Baptist churches. You do not wear your hat in church at all. Whether you're praying or you're not, you don't wear your hat in church. But especially if you're praying anywhere, you take your hat off. Why? We don't know. You know, it's kind of like the beginning of Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition, the song at the beginning. Why is this a tradition? I'll tell you. I don't know. <laughs> That's where most of us are at with these things. And it's not to say that anybody who is blindly following tradition in these ways, means ill by it. But it is to say, when we realize that these traditions are negotiable, they're not what we are ultimately bound to, first and foremost, and that it might be worth a look-see how else we could use our liberty, if we have freedom, we have liberty, how else could we employ it? Could we employ it in a more beneficial way? Would there be a benefit to an outward sign of a wife's submission to her husband, could that be? It's worth considering, especially in this day where there is so much feminism that says the woman needs to assert her independence. You know, it's curious. The man is expected to take his hat off when he's praying as a show of respect, but women are not expected to cover their heads before they pray as a sign of respect for their husbands. That's a curious thing. It seems like a little bit of a double standard relative to the Bible. Now, you would say if you have as your measuring stick the spirit of this age, you would say that the biblical standard is a double standard. And I would say only if you come to the text with the view that men and women are completely interchangeable. And it doesn't matter. Man, woman, husband, wife, they just look different. Otherwise, we have to deny all differences. And maybe even eliminate all differences, all distinctions. Something to think about. It is something to think about. And let me just suggest too, wedding rings. Briefly, a word about wedding rings. If a man takes off his wedding ring when he goes out of town, what do we say? We say, oh, that is not so good. How are women going to know that you're married? What are you doing? We are instantly suspicious. Same also with a woman. If a woman 
is out and about. She takes off her wedding ring. We're going to say, oh, why? Right? Are you trying to hide the fact that you're married? What are you up to? But in this passage, we have an idea that a woman who is married, at least, should be covering her head as a sign of submission to her husband. And so a big question to my way of thinking is, once again, would there be a benefit to Christian wives saying, we're going to cover our heads? Now, I'm not saying do what the Muslims do. And I'm not saying have this be a fear-based, we're going to terrorize you, harass you, insult you, degrade you, ostracize you if you don't. But even just a scarf, right? Like a simple, there are lots of very attractive things that women can put on their heads that accessorize, that make them look even more feminine, that accentuate their femininity. And that's a good thing, right? God's ideal is not androgyny. He made men and women different. That's one of the things you can take away from this text. You could look at it. You could look at it like, oh man, this is oppressive. Or you could say, no, this is beautiful. This is a way of contrasting masculinity with femininity. Men and women are different. And maybe we should honor those differences and celebrate those differences. Maybe we should cherish those differences as a good gift from God instead of grumbling and murmuring and complaining in a discontented way about them. Again, just a thought, just a little food for thought on this Friday morning. Moving on, speaking of history and historical revisionism, Denver Museum of Nature and Science closing problematic exhibit. Here's a quote. We understand that the hall reinforces harmful stereotypes and white dominant culture, end quote. The museum said in a letter to members. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science, 9news.com, reports in an article written by Alexander Kirk, published just yesterday, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, DMNS, announced that it will close its North American Indian Cultures exhibit hall. DMNS said in a letter to its members that it will close the hall this summer because it, quote, reinforces harmful stereotypes and white dominant culture, end quote. Quote, in the 1970s, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science created the North American Indian Cultures Hall, DMNS Vice President of Exhibitions Liz Davis wrote in the letter. Quote, despite collaboration with indigenous representatives during its creation and ongoing efforts by curators, conservators, and others to update and improve various parts of the hall, we acknowledge that it remains problematic. We understand that the hall reinforces harmful stereotypes, and white dominant culture. This summer, we will be closing the hall to acknowledge the harm we have caused. We have developed and agreed upon a healing statement in collaboration with indigenous consultants and with input and guidance from conversations with community members. The statement was crafted after taking into account the concerns expressed by the community and in direct response to those concerns. End quote. Allow me to put this succinctly, if I can. This is stupid. (laughs) This is dumb. This is stupid. This is dumb. You know what's problematic here is not that you had a museum exhibit hall that reinforced, quote, harmful stereotypes and white dominant culture, end quote. What's problematic here is that this is straight from the Saul Alinsky playbook. This is straight from the pages of Howard Zinn. This is 
right out of Tom Wolfe's Mau Mauing the Flat Catchers and Radical Chic. Some agitator from a supposedly oppressed community comes to you complaining that even just your representation of the history is a problem and then you take it down. So history offends people. It offends the indigenous peoples that they got dominated by white Europeans. They're offended by reminders of that. And so you're going to take down the exhibit. If history is getting in the way of what you want to do next or what they want to do next or what somebody wants to do next, well, then just let's get that history out of here. Let's box it up. And what's next? You're going to make a bonfire in front of the museum? What are you going to do with the exhibit pieces? This is stupid. This is extraordinarily dumb. This is iconoclastic. And the left is full of iconoclasts. But you know what? Mao's Cultural Revolution in China did a very similar thing. The communists in China wanted the Chinese people to denigrate their own culture, their own history, to forget about everything that had happened for thousands of years prior to the rise of communism, the rise of the party. And so they purged as much of that cultural inheritance as they possibly could. And if you were found to be still venerating your heritage as a Chinese person, it could go very, very badly for you. Here's a alternative suggestion for this museum in Denver. How about if the Native Americans are so upset about your exhibit hall, if the radical left is so upset about your exhibit hall because of the way that it presents the history of Native Americans, how about the people who are so upset go make their own museum? Why do they have to take over this museum that was already presenting exhibits? Go make your own exhibits. But of course, that's harder to do. It's easy to get angry and emote and throw around these wild accusations. It's problematic that this highlights white dominant culture. Well, I'm sorry, but last I checked, the supposedly oppressive white men were also the ones who were preserving artifacts in many cases. Not in all. There are bad actors. There are bad characters in American history and European history. White people are not immune from having villains produced who go and run amok. There were definitely archaeologists, so-called anthropologists, so-called, who tried to erase evidence for a highly developed culture in the Americas prior to the arrival of Europeans because it conflicted with the narrative that was desired. But read Charles C. Mann. This revisionism is like a pendulum. It swings back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes it promotes this idea of the noble savage. These people were living at peace with and harmony with nature, not affecting their environment. Other times when the narrative is convenient to some agenda in the present, we're told these Native Americans actually devastated their environment. And that's a cautionary tale for why we need to stop using fossil fuels and stop generating electricity and driving internal combustion engines and stop having babies, et cetera, et cetera. This is just the latest instance of revisionism, but it's also a kind of iconoclasm. 
it's a kind of destroying the icons of the previous regime, which is to say that this is symbolic of the new regime. This is part of the larger cultural revolution, which is very leftist and very dangerous. Also part of that same cultural revolution. Blaze TV staff publishes over at theblaze.com. Parents sue school over trans indoctrination. Here's a story out of Colorado, actually, or to do with Colorado. And Lauren Chen, beautiful gal, she has some thoughts on this. I'm going to play a clip of her explaining, lest it seem as though I am just paraphrasing her words and plagiarizing after a fashion. I'll give her full credit. You can watch the full video. But here it is, cut one of Lauren Chen explaining what's happening in Wellington, Colorado, in this local public school district. Take a listen. Guys, it pains me to say it. It really does. But I have to say it because it's it's just it's true and it's important. There are people out there, activists who are determined to groom your children to embrace a dangerous and hedonistic lifestyle because it furthers their own ideology. They are more than willing. They're happy to throw your children and their well-being under the bus if it means that their agenda is furthered. And I am, of course, talking about the LGBT agenda here. We have this very shocking story out of Colorado where these teachers were actually secretly groomed students into embracing transgenderism to the point where one student actually tried to unalive herself. Let's just say in the interests of remaining advertiser friendly, but this comes to us from the Daily Mail. Parents are suing over claims teachers encouraged their sixth grade daughters to join LGBTQ club, but to keep it a secret, girls were told if they are not happy in their bodies, they are transgender. Here's the thing. There is absolutely no reason why a school should have an LGBTQ club in the first place, but not only do these clubs exist, but they're actually being held in secret with parents actively being sidelined in their own children's development because these teachers, they're activists and they think they know better than you. They know better than you parents about what's best for your children. And not only are they not telling parents everything they should be, but now they're actually encouraging children to lie to their own parents. It's shocking stuff. It's nothing short of grooming behavior. Let's be clear, but let's jump into the article. Two Colorado families are suing their children's school district. The America First Policy Institute and Illuminate Legal filed a lawsuit on Wednesday against Poudre School District on behalf of Jonathan and Aaron Lee and Nick and Linnea Jurek. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Sixth grade daughters attended Wellington Middle High School, according to a copy of the lawsuit obtained by the Daily Caller. It says the activities of the Gay Straight Alliance, or GSA, were not known to the parents, and those who headed the club's meetings actively encouraged students to keep talks about polyamory, purity blockers, transgenderism, gender identity, sexuality, suicide, and name and pronoun changes a secret from their parents. I want to be clear, there was absolutely no reason why discussions on polyamory, transness, purity blockers, any of that stuff should be at a school. It's okay. It's totally inappropriate. And I'm tired of pretending that it's not and that this is just a normal thing to do. It's not. Remember back in the old days when students went to learn math and history and reading? Well, now not only are they no longer learning math and history and reading, and we know that for sure based on the test scores that are coming out of these schools, but instead they've replaced those topics with things like here's how to trans a five-year-old. It's insane. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> and that's two and a half minutes. There's a almost 12 minute video that'll be in the link that I'll post in the description for this podcast episode. You can watch the full thing and read the write-up, but a couple items to point out. One, it's Pooter. Sorry. I don't know if you pronounced the names of the parents who are suing 
correctly, but I do know it's pronounced Pooter as far as the district goes. Uh, also, too, can I just say, and this is why we homeschool, and I don't say that to rub it in anybody's face, but I say, and this is why we homeschool, and this is why Republicans really ought to be promoting the school choice thing nationwide, really lead with that foot, because that's a way to break the government monopoly on education. That's a way to break the left's monopoly on education in this country. There are a lot of parents who are upset about these things and they don't know what to say and they're afraid to say anything. And if they could, if it were viable for them to have mama stay home and homeschool the kids or for them to hire somebody to teach their children privately or for them to send their kids to a private school or a Christian school, they would do so. And if they could do so, that competition in the market for education would also force these public schools to come to Jesus, as it were, or else collapse. So Republicans should be leading with the school choice foot. Also, I would love to see more and more American parents homeschooling their kids. I wrote the book, and this is why we homeschool. You can go buy it, Google it, look it up, go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, go to actually uh, increasingly libraries are stocking my book. I get a little bit of money each month because I'm seeing Hoopla is picking up copies of my book, the e-version of it, the e-book version of it. And you can request it if you don't want to buy it necessarily. It's not like it's a super expensive book, but if you don't want to buy it, you can request it at your local library. Do the other people, other parents in your community a favor and get them a copy. Give it to somebody that you know and love. It's not preachy, I don't think. I don't think that I'm preachy in the book. I've been told by others who've read it that I'm not very preachy about it. I just say, hey, these are our reasons. That's what the title of the book is, and that's what I deliver. As advertised, these are our reasons for homeschooling. And I was homeschooled growing up. In fact, growing up in Montana, you would think that public schools might be an option. They weren't a good option. Uh, whatever the locals who build their community around the public school might say in a very defensive way, the public schools are not a good option in most cases. And Christian schools are not necessarily a good option. Always. You can have lousy Christian schools that are not offering a good education that are staffed by people who have problems that you don't want your children to pick up on or suffer from. And so halfway through kindergarten, I actually got pulled out of a Christian school in Western Montana and my mom homeschooled me for the second half of kindergarten. And then they tried my parents putting me in a different Christian school for first grade. And there again, there were problems. The first school, it was a lack of supervision during recess and some bullying that was happening that the teachers just weren't paying any attention to. They weren't catching. They weren't dealing with the second Christian school. It was a mixed first and second grade class. And the teacher was going through a messy divorce and had some real problems that she was taking out with all of the male students uh, in her class, including me. And so halfway through that school year, I got pulled out and homeschooled the second half of first grade. And then on up until my senior year of high school, I was homeschooled. And it's not to say that every homeschooling story is just full of positivity and nothing but 
happiness and joy and success. It's not to say that, but it is to say, as I explain in my book, homeschooling is what you make it. And if you like me, even though I don't have my kids in the public schools, if you like me, look at these stories and some of them not very far away. Wellington, Colorado is Larimer County, which is the next county over here in Colorado. So this is not far. And we're dealing with these exact same issues here in Weld County with District 6 public schools. There are explicit materials showing up in curriculum and in after-school programs and in the school libraries explicitly promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, being non-binary, normalizing, celebrating, picturing it, visualizing it. Increasingly, this is being pushed on our kids. And with success, these kids are coming to the conclusion that if they identify themselves as gay, bi, trans, non-binary, they'll be celebrated. They'll be affirmed. They'll be happy if they're not happy. And can I just point out that a junior high girl or a junior high boy for that matter, not feeling comfortable in their body might not be a sign that they are a boy trapped in a girl's body, a girl trapped in a boy's body. It could just be a sign that they're going through puberty. And who is comfortable in their body in junior high? Nobody who is actually paying attention. No, nobody who is cognizant and self-aware in junior high is like, oh yeah, I just, I love that my body's going through these changes. Yeah, I totally, I'm totally comfortable with my body. And oh, by the way too, who among junior hires is going to say I'm totally comfortable being attracted to the opposite sex? I'm, if I'm a girl, I'm totally comfortable being attracted to boys. Or if I'm a boy, I'm totally comfortable being attracted to girls. No, it's an extraordinarily awkward time. And it's a transitional time, not from boy to girl and girl to boy, from boy to man, from girl to woman. And if these radical activists weren't so hell-bent, and I mean hell-bent, on promoting Mao's Cultural Revolution American style, they would be explaining to these youths that this is just a phase of life that everybody has to go through. It's a normal part of growing up for you to feel awkward and uncomfortable for your body to be going through these changes. It's not just you. This too shall pass. And here's how we can be protective of you. You know, maybe it would help these kids to have less sexualization everywhere they look, all over the TVs, all over their smartphones, all over their computer screens, all over the magazine covers, all over the billboards, all over society. Maybe it would actually help these kids to have less sexualization. And I'm not talking about everybody being androgynous, far from it, because I think that the hypersexualization of advertising and the way that people are conditioned to dress, the wardrobe, the attire, the fashion that is increasingly expected if people are going to be noticed, if they're going to become famous on social media, if they're going to be successful, supposedly, socially, the expectation is you need to look sexy. A junior high boy or girl feels about as far from that as humanly possible. And if they're confused and the, the left gets them in the public schools to be persuaded that they're a transgendered person, and then it just so happens that that is a beeline to voting Democrat, this is why we homeschool. And this is why you should homeschool too. And you should vote Republican. And Republicans should 
promote school choice. Now, speaking of District 6, Greeley Public Schools, I'm going to play an approximately four-minute long video here for you. This is the end of the 2022 to 2023 school year message from Superintendent Dr. Deirdre Pilch. This is her message. This is the message of the school board. This is the message of the public schools here in Greeley, Colorado. I'm going to play this audio for you, and then I have some thoughts. But first, I'll let Dr. Pilch speak. Here it is. Cut to take a listen. As we close out the 22-23 school year, I wanted to send a message to our families and our students here in District 6. We're so proud of the hard work our students have dedicated over the last several months. We've really come out of this pandemic finally. We've had a school year without quarantines and without cohorting, and it does feel like things are getting back to a, a natural rhythm for kids and for staff. We know we still have work to do to recover from the aftermath of this pandemic, but our staff are dedicated to do that work. And your students, our students, have proven to be more resilient than any of us could have ever imagined. We're so proud of the many accomplishments here in District 6. If you just look back over the past year, we've had students earn state and national recognitions and staff earn state and national recognitions. It's really a great place to be. I'm very grateful for our families, and I thank you. I thank you for trusting us with your precious, precious children. We know that safety and security in our school district, as, as well as around the country, continues to be present of mind for all of us. I want to assure you that there isn't a day that goes by that we don't talk about what else we can be doing to ensure that our schools are safe and welcoming, and that our children feel safe and welcome in our schools. This summer, our district leadership team will undergo additional training for crisis management and crisis intervention. And of course, crisis prevention. We know that our greatest tool in preventing school violence is you, the parent, our students, and our staff. It really is important that if you see something that doesn't seem quite right, that you report that. Our students have done a great job with that. The Mill Levy and the Bond have allowed us to enhance security throughout the district. That work continues as we go into this summer and next school year. We're so grateful to the voters of Greeley and Evans for investing in our schools in the way that you have. If you haven't had a chance to get out and see our renovations or our new buildings, I encourage you to do so. This past fall, we opened the new Greeley West High School. It was a rebuild school. We also opened the Toynton Pre-Engineering Academy. This fall, we will open the new Jefferson High School and the Current Technical Education Center for students district-wide. We will also open the rebuild of Madison Elementary School. It will open as the James Madison K-8 STEAM Academy. We're so excited to have these new buildings in our district and excited for all the improvements and renovations. Some of our students will be joining us for summer school and credit recovery and enrichment opportunities this summer. We're able to do this because of our mill levy override dollars. We are fortunate to have these extended learning opportunities throughout the year as well as during the summertime. As we go into the summer months, I hope you'll find some time to rest and come together as a family to have some fun times. 
our Board of Education, our district leadership team, and I, we are all so honored to serve you here in our school district. We know you have choices about where you educate your children. Thank you for choosing District 6. And thank you for your continued support and trust in the work that we do. Over the next few months, we will be getting ready for the 23-24 school year. We look forward to welcoming you back to a new school year in August. See you soon. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> where to begin? Let's suppose we were playing public school promotion talking points bingo. Just imagine with me that that were a game. And let's suppose that you have squares for new buildings. So money was raised, as she points out, and as the brochure that I received in the mail from District 6, report to the community, uh, points out money was raised to raise salaries and to build up the facilities and to improve the facilities and to upgrade computers. And the big idea is that the kids are getting a better educational experience because you can hire and retain the best teachers and the teachers are cheerful because they're making more money, which of course, I mean, who wouldn't be cheerful when they make more money? The administrators are going to be the cream of the crop if you can hire and retain the best administrators around. And so you'll have better administration, better coordination, better scheduling, better juggling of the various activities and the messaging, of course, too. And of course, you've got to hire somebody to produce this kind of multimedia that you can then post to your YouTube channel for Greeley Schools. And if you had a square in public school promotion, talking points, bingo, for here's where we're spending your money, your tax dollars, which are compulsory, which you can't just decide not to spend. You can't decide to not give this money. It's not charity. It's being taken, but then everybody votes on it and a simple majority might be all that it requires to pass an increase on taxes, which of course they will lobby for. They will go out and encourage you to, and parents will too. Parents will say, oh, well, this one time I was driving by the school and I saw this thing that was falling apart and so we should definitely spend more of our money, give more of our money to these facilities and these administrators and these teachers and the rest. And our computers are so many years old and we need to get with the times and the economy is going in this direction. These kids need to have the best and do it for the children. Uh, you can definitely put a little token on the here's where we spent your money. And oh, let me show you some images of our state-of-the-art facilities that we spent your tax dollars on. And they are very good looking facilities. I've driven by them. They're all over town here in Greeley and in Evans. They're very good looking facilities. They look great. They look like they were very expensive. They look like they were well-designed and well-constructed. And they look like a very fine use of tax dollars, unless we are thinking in a very business way about opportunity cost. If we're thinking about opportunity cost, and we're thinking about how else the money could have been spent. Could the money have been spent better if it would have been spent differently? Would you get more of a return on your investment spending it 
somewhere else, some other way. I will give you an analogy. And the analogy is as follows. And this is a real life example from my own working life. Here, 11 years or so ago, a little over 11 years ago, I got into oil and gas and I started as a lease operator for ConocoPhillips in the Williston Basin, Eastern Montana for a couple of years. And then they transferred me over to Western North Dakota, where I took care of dozens of oil and gas wells, maintained them, inspected them, reported the production, did maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. Well, at a certain point, because the Williston Basin was growing and they needed more and more uh, office space to house various engineers and accountants and analysts and technicians and operators and foremen and management and HSC and all the rest, they, this company that I worked for, ConocoPhillips, built a very impressive new office in Watford City, North Dakota, which was about an hour from my house at the time in Sydney, Montana, where they had asked me to relocate to during the oil boom. They asked me and everybody, not just me, but everybody to relocate to closer to our fields. And they offered relocation assistance and down payment assistance and to pay for moving expenses and all the rest. And I bought a house in Sydney, Montana, just a couple of miles, a couple of short miles from their Sydney office. Well, then they've got this new office that they weren't leasing. They had built and they owned in Watford City. And somebody in Houston, Texas decided that on paper, it made a lot of sense to close the Sydney office. Let's stop paying the lease costs for that building. And let's tell everybody who lives in Sydney to relocate to Watford City. If you have a field in eastern Montana and you live in eastern Montana, well, you can just commute. And here's the deal we'll offer you. And this was legit. This is the choice that was presented. You can either accept a severance package and leave the company, go on your merry way. You'll get a payout based on how long you've been here and what your salary is. And we will say thank you for your service and you can go get a job somewhere else. Or you can express interest It wasn't even guaranteed. You can express interest in relocating to Watford City an hour away. And when you move to Watford City, we will perhaps possibly give you a relocation package as well. We haven't decided, but you can express interest. And if we offer you a position in Watford City, you can either commute back and forth on your own dime without being able to charge for the hours. It would be at least two hours every day. Your time would start and stop at the office in Watford City. Uh, Or if you don't accept that option, you can move. You can move to Watford City. And so this decision was announced to me. In fact, my foreman drove over to my house and he said, hey, can I talk with you? I'm going to stop by your house. And he explained to me, hey, here's what just came down the pike. I thought you should know. And he looked very heavy with the news and very sad because he understood what it meant. And I was just blindsided by it all. Like what in the world? This isn't fair. But I gave it some time and my wife and I, we talked about it and we thought, well, I could just eat that two hours a day and I'll have to work two hours more a day or else I'm just getting two hours a day cut from my pay. And that's a big cut. Uh, Or we could try to move and let's look at some properties. And we drove over to Watford City with our whole family, all our kids loaded up and Lauren and I driving around looking at listings on our phones, 
driving by those properties. And we looked at the cost of those houses, and it was much more expensive than ours was. And we were in no position already because they had slashed overtime. They had said to operators, yeah, even if you have a valid excuse or valid reason for wanting to work overtime to maintain your route, to do the work yourself instead of us hiring roustabouts, third-party contractors, we're going to say no overtime, no overtime. And so I complained to my foreman after thinking about it, after looking at the price of these houses, after looking at the injustice, the unfairness, the, I would say, shadiness of what had been proposed, this big change that had come to us from Houston. I went to my foreman and I said, well, what if I what if I object? What if I refuse to just donate my time as I see it? I'm just taking a pay cut here and I can't really afford to move even with a relocation package. And also well, we've got roots now in this community. We've lived here for a few years now and I moved, I just moved my family here a few years ago. We have a church, we have friends, we have family in the area. We don't have any of that in Watford City. It wouldn't be fair to my family. What if I object? What if I complain? And I was told, well, if you complain, then they're just going to say you have to park your work truck in Watford City. And then you've got to drive your personal vehicle back and forth. So they will tighten the screws even harder if there's an objection, if there's a complaint that this is a bit fraudulent, actually. And so I made the decision shortly thereafter to take the severance. And that was why I left ConocoPhillips is because, for one, I had lost a tremendous amount of respect for management and for the company as a result of this having been the decision come to. It seemed like a bit of a slap in the face for people like me who had been working hard, doing everything the company had asked me, going above and beyond. I took the severance, wrote a resignation letter, said thank you very much. And the reason I bring this up, and I say that this is analogous to the whole look at these shiny facilities, and the reason I say that this is important for parents who have decisions to make about where to have their children educated is because there's an opportunity cost to building that big, fancy, shiny, state-of-the-art building. And that opportunity cost might be your family's more holistic quality of life, standard of living. It might just be that that money would have had 10 times the benefit if it were going to the parents of their kids so that they can educate their children at home or so that they can send their kids to a private school or so that they can hire a tutor. It could be that there would be 10 times the benefit. Now, briefly, Dr. Deirdre Pilch also mentions safety. Of course, we're very concerned about safety. So if you had that on your bingo card, you can put a token on that one as well. Everybody's concerned about safety. We want to assure you we are also concerned about safety. Beep boop, beep boop. We also are telling our students and our parents, if you see something, say something. You know, the trouble there, though, is not that I object to kids' safety, but the trouble there is why are these kids so unsafe in the first place? Is it not because of the cumulative effects of a morally bankrupt curriculum and pedagogical model that is inherent to the public education system across the country? Is it not because of the cumulative moral deterioration of American society? These kids grow up without two parents in the home, no father in the home, and then they go off to school and they don't respect their teachers either. And their teachers really can't do but so much. Their hands are very much tied. And so 
if you're really concerned about the safety of your kids, here's a question. How much safer would your kids be if they were homeschooled versus being public schooled? That's an important question that parents have every right to ask, and we know the answer. How many school shootings happen in a homeschooling environment every year versus how many school shootings happen in a public school environment in this country? We know the answer. If it were anywhere close statistically, and I realize there are far more kids who go to public schools than there are kids who are homeschooled, but even just relatively speaking, as a share of the whole, in relation to how many kids are homeschooled versus how many kids are public schooled, how many school shootings do you hear about in a homeschooling environment? Uh, None is the answer. That's the correct answer. So there's that. I don't hear a lot of talk of homeschooled students harming themselves, committing suicide, shooting up their classmates. I don't hear a lot of talk about that. And I think that if it were happening as much as it happens in the public schools, we would hear a lot more about it. I really do think we would. I don't think that this media that is hostile to conservatives and flyover country America and Republicans and homeschooling, I don't think that this media, this corporate media, would let it pass. And I don't think that the public school promoters and the teachers unions would let it pass. They would absolutely be banging that drum all day, every day. So there's that. Uh, Also too, can I just point out that the kind of safety that Deirdre Pilch and the school board for Greeley Schools, District 6, are attentive to is only physical safety from the standpoint of, I don't want my kid to be shot, stabbed, blown up, beaten physically. But what about moral safety? What about spiritual health? What about safety from ideas that are statistically shown to put them at a much higher risk for self-harm and suicide? What about safety in that regard? Well, we know, I know certainly, and I've met with some who are involved in this locally in these public schools in the Northern Colorado area. I know for a fact that there are parents who are very upset with Greeley Public Schools because of the books that they're finding in the Greeley Public School libraries and in the curriculum because of comprehensive sex education. And I know for a fact that the Greeley School Board has been made aware of the complaints and the concerns of parents in this Greeley Public Schools District 6 jurisdiction and that this school board has by and large, if not entirely, paid lip service to the concerns of those parents. So in other words, if you see something, say something, and we will totally ignore what you're saying and what you're seeing, we'll pretend that we care, all the while calling trash hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of forms submitted, requesting review of certain books that are available in the libraries for these kids as young as elementary school to pick up off the shelf, read, and then go and put into practice. If you say something to this school district, you're at their mercy. But if you homeschool, it's as simple as this. You talk to your wife or you talk to your husband and you say, hey, listen, I'm concerned about some of the things that are in this book. Is our kid ready for this? Are they going to be able to handle this? Are they going to take this in a bad direction? harmful to them, harmful to others? Is this building good character in them? That's something I don't hear Greeley Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Deirdre Pilch talking about at all. I don't hear her talking about character at all 
She says, our students are winning recognition at the state level, at the national level for academic achievement. And I say, some of them are, most of them aren't, but I know where your priorities are. I know what's important to you, which I might've known just based on you being Dr. Deirdre Pilch, your vision for these kids is very much like the vision for what success looked like in your life. Some of them will be doctors. It's only special that you're Dr. Deirdre Pilch because most people are not doctor anything. And so some of these kids, yeah, they'll win national recognition. They'll be the cream of the crop. Most of them need to just be obedient taxpayers, factory workers, soldiers, because that's what the Prussian model of public education that was implemented by John Dewey and the progressives about a century ago was designed to accomplish. And this is why we homeschool. Moving on. Not to be staff published a piece just yesterday. Yes, we want to throw teachers in prison if they give kids sexually explicit material. Why is this news, Washington Post? So here's the Headline from Washington Post, school librarians face a new penalty in the banned book wars, prison. Here's a quote from the article. Librarians could face years of imprisonment and tens of thousands in fines for providing sexually explicit, obscene, or harmful books to children, dot, dot, dot. Here's another quote. At least seven states have passed such laws in the last two years, according to a Washington Post analysis, six of them in the past two months, although governors of Idaho and North Dakota vetoed the legislation, shame on them, by the way. Another dozen states considered more than 20 similar bills this year, half of which are likely to come up again in 2024, the Post found. That is to say that our elected representatives in these states, as many as 27 states perhaps, have been told by their constituents, we're not good with this. We're not good with our kids being given pornographic material, sexually explicit material, material that is supposed to turn them into sexual deviants or normalize sexual deviants or expose them to sexual deviants when they're not emotionally, intellectually, spiritually ready to know what to do with it. And the teachers are not going to walk them through it in a way that we trust. Not these days. And the Washington Post says, oh, this is a terrible thing, horrible thing. And I say, no, it's not. No, it isn't. Here's the quick test. If this were a Catholic school, and this were some priest or some nun who was giving issues of Playboy magazine, for instance, to students and saying, well, you need to know what's out there. This is the real world, and the real world contains pornography. What would we make of that? What would we say about that? How come when it's a Christian organization, a Christian school, a Catholic school, and it comes out that Kids have been getting molested or groomed by their teachers or by principals, administrators. How come that is proof that we all should abandon this or that church, this or that denomination, this or that school, this or that faith? But when it's the public schools, the public schools are like, we care deeply about your child's safety. When it's the media reporting on it, Oh, it's an isolated incident. And we don't know for sure. They're very, very concerned with not rushing to conclusions, unlike when it supports the narrative of the cultural Marxists and the cultural revolutionaries. And that's the tell. When they're all for let's not rush to conclusions, if the conclusions would be damaging to the leftist cause, to progressivism, 
and supportive of conservative solutions. But they are all for rushing to conclusions. If those same conservatives and Republicans would be harmed or damaged, even just temporarily, that's when you know who you can trust and who you can't, quite frankly. But let's talk about Ron DeSantis, one of the Republicans who I like best. In fact, I think he might be my favorite Republican currently serving. Florida governor mocks Disney over company's latest political stunt. Ryan Zavedra reports for the Daily Wire. Long and short of it, Disney was going to build a $1.3 billion Lake Nona Town Center office building, and they've recently announced they're not going to do that. They're not going to relocate approximately 2,000 jobs from South California to Orlando, Florida. They're not going to do that. Here was the statement from Josh De Amaro, Disney's theme park and consumer products chairman. Quote, given the considerable changes that have occurred since the announcement of this project, including new leadership and changing business conditions, we have decided not to move forward with construction of the campus. Quote, this was not an easy decision to make, but I believe it is the right one. Here is another quote. This one from Ron DeSantis's press secretary, Jeremy Redfern. Quote, Disney announced the possibility of a Lake Nona campus nearly two years ago. Nothing ever came of the project, and the state was unsure whether it would come to fruition. Quote, given the company's financial straits, falling market cap, and declining stock price, it is unsurprising that they would restructure their business operations and cancel unsuccessful ventures, end quote. According to the reporting from Ryan Saavedra, Disney has already laid off 4,000 employees in recent months and has plans to lay off thousands more in the coming months due to the company's financial struggles. And of course, the media wants to say this is all Florida Republicans' fault. How dare they go after this innocent childhood Americana institution, the Walt Disney Company. What monsters. And if you look at the latest magazine cover featuring Ron DeSantis, you'll see him looking very thuggish, like he's a mafia boss. They've decided he's a big enough threat that they're going to stop playing nice or just ignoring him. Now it's time to do the whole orange man bad treatment for him too. But this is what happens when you're trying to corrupt our children by hijacking the Walt Disney Company. The Walt Disney Company stops having the trust of American parents. I, for one, canceled our Disney Plus subscription. I was really excited about it because, oh, cool, they've got classic Disney movies on there. They've got Marvel movies on there. They've got Star Wars content on there. I canceled our Disney Plus, and I'm not bragging, and I'm not looking down on anybody who didn't cancel. It's a judgment call, but my conscience wouldn't allow me to keep the Disney Plus subscription, and so I canceled it after Disney fired Gina Carano for comparing the treatment of conservatives in public life, on social media, and in the media that is corporate news, supposedly. Uh, She likened the treatment of conservatives, the way that conservatives are talked about in America, to the way that the Jews were talked about in the lead-up to the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. And for that, Disney fired her. And that was when I decided, all right, you know what? If she's not welcome in your show, The Mandalorian, which was doing great, but you know where their priorities are when they're willing to fire her for something she said off of cameras 
in her own spare time, you're not going to have her on the show because she just communicated a little bit of a defense for conservatives in America. Well, then I don't want to watch your shows. I do, but I don't. I do, but I don't. Disney has it coming and they deserve every bit of pain that Anheuser-Busch is getting because they brought this on themselves. There have to be consequences. And quite frankly, I'm not going to buy Disney products or Anheuser-Busch products just because somebody's like, oh, that's so, that's so not fair. This is an American institution. How could you? How could you allow this great American company to collapse? And I say, no, the corporate board, just like, <laughs> just like the decision can be made in Houston, Texas, that on paper, you know, looks like a really good move, but on the ground, it amounts to a slap in the face to regular folk who are trying to raise their families. So also with beer companies, so also with Walt Disney. So also it turns out with Ford, I'm going to play another clip for you. This one of a new set of commercials. Actually, this will be two clips, two cuts back to back of some new Ford commercials where it's very obvious Ford is trying to increase their ESG score and a pox on them and their house for it. But without further ado, here are cuts three and four. Take a listen. strongman since 2009 when I was 17 years old and in 2013 I won the amateur national championship in in the US to turn pro shortly after that in 2014 is when I realized for myself who I was for so many years I had been ignoring who I was and woke up one day and realized how tired I was fortunately when I came out in 2014 I really learned how special this sport is. There is nothing quite like the strongman community. Each competitor is each other's best supporter. The strongman community is a close-knit community. I mean, we all support each other when we go to competition. I was a little bit anxious and worried about what the response was going to be, especially being in this sport, because it is, it's a masculine sport. 
It doesn't matter your sex, your religion, your orientation, where you're from, what language you speak, what color your skin, nothing. The only thing that you need to be in Strongman is mentally and physically tough and strong. After coming out, there were some people that I got backlash from and negative comments from, but what I learned really quickly was all of my competitors that I had met over the years of competing were the first ones to go to bat for me and really show their support in an amazing way. It really bothers me when people feel the need to abuse others or spread hate based on solely on somebody not living the life to their standards. That bothers me. It's just ridiculous that in this world, you know, 2022, how can that upset somebody for who they are? You know, how, how does it matter to you who Rob's, you know, intimate with, who he loves? For the strongman community, I think he's well accepted. I mean, we just, he's a fun guy. He's a fun guy to be around. I mean, we appreciate Rob a lot. We all support him. We all love him. And, yeah, we're always going to be behind him. Full pun intended, it, it lifted this weight off of my shoulders of this burden I was carrying for so many years. You know, I was able to take that energy and put it into competing and into strongman. My Instagram name is literally the world's strongest gay. So I put it out there really as a reminder to people that sexuality has no bearing on things you can achieve in life. Seeing the very gay Raptor in person and what Ford is honestly doing is one of the coolest things we've seen from, from a global brand like this. You know, I think during Pride Month, especially in June, a lot of companies show their pride, but it's what do they do outside of those other 11 months of the year? I think the biggest thing I want people to realize from this is once you accept yourself from who you are, that really anything is possible. Strong does not have to be physical. Strong is more of a mindset. Going into every single day knowing you are who you are and living your life as authentically as possible really is the most powerful thing you can do in life. And <laughs> where to begin? I have two Fords and I kind of want to sell them now. I, I'll just be honest. Uh, a few things are worth commenting on in these two commercials. The first one you couldn't see, but the visuals were that you have two trucks covered in mud racing across a dirt track and both are Ford Raptors. One is a red Ford Raptor and it kicks up some water in a puddle and then there's a rainbow, right? So there's, it's subtle, but you can tell that that truck is red. So that's the red-blooded American, so to speak. It's an American car company, by the way, even though the world's strongest gay just said it's a global brand. Oh yeah, sure. It's a, it's a international company, but then this is Actually, the proof of what I've been talking with you about on this podcast, some of the books I've been reading and reviewing and bringing to your attention, this is exactly the problem with the elites who live on the coasts primarily here in the U.S. and they live in the big cities here in the U.S. They work for these major corporations and these major corporations have them travel all over the world. And if they own the major corporations, if they are the major investors in these major corporations, then they don't see themselves as Americans first and foremost. They see themselves as global citizens. And they don't see these corporations as being American companies. They see these as being global brands, global companies. 
And so supposedly the big idea is we have to be more inclusive and diverse so that we can sell our product to people all over the world who have all kinds of different ideas. And yet you need to understand that the promotion of homosexuality across the world is something that America is exporting. If America exports normalizing homosexuality to foreign countries and then American politicians and business owners, corporation owners come right back and they say, oh, well, we, you know, look, look over there in that other country. We want to, we want to be like these international uh, community players overseas and look, you know, they're, they're doing the gay thing too. It's like, well, yeah, but they're doing the gay thing because we're exporting it and our state department is promoting it. And our state department is insisting that this has to be normalized in other countries. So mm, you've created your own echo chamber in effect to say it's to be inclusive. And even just the accents, you can hear the accents in these very strong, big guys who compete in these weightlifting competitions and they do these big public events. And yeah, they're very strong physically, but that's also analogous to the talking points that I hear out of Greeley District 6. Yeah, I suppose they're very accomplished after a fashion. I suppose they're very secure physically, but spiritually, it's not my standards. It's not my expectations. It's God's morality. I'm not imposing my morality on you to say, hey, keep the gay stuff away from me and my kids and out of the public schools and out of the libraries and off of the children's cartoons and the live action remakes. Keep the gay stuff out of my face. You're the one who's being in your face about your sexuality. And then when I say, hey, you know what? I'm really feeling very uncomfortable because the Lord, my God, has said this is an abomination. That's when the diversity, equity, and inclusivity evaporates. You know, that first commercial where all you heard was the music. The second raptor drives through a much bigger puddle and the water washes off a whole bunch of the mud and you can see that it's a rainbow Ford Raptor. And the second commercial is all about these strong guys pulling this rainbow Raptor and standing in front of it and saying, hey, how great is this? That this is a symbol of a global brand supporting the LGBTQ community. And we don't care who this one guy, the world's strongest gay, is intimate with. We don't care. Anybody who does care is a sissy. Well, I guess you can't say that though, right? So you're trying to play both sides of the fence. You're trying to say, oh, look how strong effeminate homosexual men can be. But on the other hand, you're saying we need to abolish any standard. No, your standard is to be in rebellion against God and to be loved by the world. And I say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a corporation to gain market share and forfeit its soul? This is a very shameful thing. And again, not to belabor the point, but this is very much like the official announcement to parents in Weld County in District 6. Look at our accomplishments. Look at our strength. Look at us winning competitions or sending some kids who win competitions at the state level or at the national level. 
look at us being inclusive and physically strong. Look at our fancy, shiny buildings that we spent your tax dollars on. Thank you for making the choice to send your kids to our schools, to us, to train, to educate, to shape the character of their minds and their hearts. Meanwhile, Tampa is the latest Florida city to cancel its pride parade because DeSantis outlawed stripping in front of kids. Reporting by Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee from just yesterday, highlighting, reporting that the day before yesterday, Ron DeSantis and Florida officially outlawed sexually explicit shows with kids present and the LGBT folks responded in the most sane way possible by canceling their long-running pride events because they can't assure that the participants aren't going to strip in front of kids. WFLA News, a local NBC channel, tweeted out a picture of a pride parade with the caption, Tampa Pride event canceled after DeSantis signs, quote, anti-drag bill. Now that's a curious thing. It's a very curious thing that supposedly this is about diversity, equity, and inclusivity, and supposedly we're concerned about the safety of children, but the veiled threats are definitely there for breadwinners. You speak out against this and work for a major corporation. If you oppose this, if you object to this, being hoisted on your community, your people, your family, your kids, maybe it'll cost you professionally. Maybe it'll cost you your job. Maybe it'll cost you your job opportunity or your contract. The claim that these folks are concerned about the safety of our kids has a lot of fine print. They are concerned insofar as there would be negative consequences for them to not be. And they stopped being concerned about the well-being of our children just as soon as there would be negative consequences for them being concerned about the safety and well-being of our kids. And this is why we homeschool, by the way. Moving on, non-binary ex-Biden nuclear official who allegedly wore women's clothing from luggage he stole, arrested as fugitive from justice. We won't spend a lot of time on this story, but Sam Brinton, the cross-dressing degenerate who worked in the Biden administration and was a poster boy for the kind of diversity, equity, and inclusivity, the kind of progress Joe Biden and the Democrats want, not just for America, but for the world. He was stealing random strangers' luggage and then wearing their clothes. And now he's been arrested, as is proper. In other news, Dave Urbanski over at The Blaze reported just yesterday Church reportedly hosts family-friendly drag show, sparkly drag queen scene entering, modern worship venue, and pink bunny character seems to taunt protesters. A church in Sherman, Texas, reportedly hosted a, quote, family-friendly drag show. The Christian Post reported that a Saturday night Pride Prom organized by Grayson County Pride was set to take place at Pecan Grove Park West in Sherman, which is around 90 minutes north of Dallas. But the Post said the event location was changed at the last minute to 118 West Pecan Street in Sherman, the address of the Mosaic Campus of First United Methodist Sherman, which is billed with a, quote, Mosaic Modern Worship, end quote, title on the church website. Apparently, you haven't read the Law of Moses. I don't see what's mosaic about this, unless you just mean mosaic like diversity, equity, and inclusivity. You mean mosaic like universalism. You mean mosaic like friendship with the world is enmity with God. Moving on, 
Homelessness official melts down after board member objects to having repeat sex offender who allegedly touched her inappropriately on their committee. This is about equity. The co-chair of an advisory committee for the King County Regional Homelessness Authority in Washington State had a meltdown on a recent virtual meeting after a fellow board member objected to the nomination of a convicted pedophile who may have also touched her inappropriately to join their committee. On May 3rd, the members of KCRHA's Continuum of Care Advisory Committee gathered for an online meeting to vote on some new nominees to join them in the COC committee. Among the nominees was Thomas Whitaker, a.k.a. Raven Crowfoot, a 38-year-old male who identifies with the LGBTQIA2S+, and American Indian Alaska Native Indigenous Communities, according to a presentation slide. Because of Whitaker's apparently manifold qualifications, he was about to sail through confirmation until board member Christina Sowickage raised an alarming objection. Can I say something? Sowickage interjected. We have a code of ethics on this board, and Thomas Whitaker... Raven Crowfoot is a sex offender, a repeat sex offender, and I have had a bad experience with him. Swickage then claimed that Whitaker had previously touched her and that if he were voted onto the board, she would not attend any meeting at which he was present. Swickage was right. Whitaker has a lengthy history of inappropriate relationships with underage girls. In 2010, when he was 25 years old, he was convicted of harboring a runaway 13-year-old girl with whom he He also had a sexual relationship. Two years later, he pled guilty to felony communicating with a minor for immoral purposes, though he had originally been charged with raping a 15-year-old. Then in 2018, when he was in his early 30s, he allegedly shared a tent with a 17-year-old girl. Despite these heinous convictions, Sowickage's objections to Whitaker's nomination did not sit well with some on the board, most notably committee co-chair Shanae Colston. Colston slammed Sowickage for revealing information about Whitaker even though that information is a matter of public record, as Colston herself admitted. Quote, we can't disclose people's personal business here, right? Although that's public disclosure, we have no right to out anybody in this space. Colson retorted, quote, that's just not okay at all. I won't stand for that as a co-chair. We're not here to discover people's backgrounds, end quote. Now, the problem or problems should be obvious. We have now progressed rather degenerated to convicted pedophiles being more important for diversity, equity, and inclusivity purposes than there would be victims. Pedophiles, a convicted pedophile, is more sacred to the left than somebody who would say, I am not comfortable with this. I've had a bad experience myself with this man. Let that sink in. Do your own research. The media won't report this. (laughs) In conclusion, let's talk about an article written by Alan Gweltso, Distinguished Research Scholar, Princeton University, published at DesiringGod.org, titled, Was American Ever Christian? Founding, Awakening, and a Common Myth. This is a very long article, which I don't have time to read all of, but I will read for you the last several paragraphs, the conclusion paragraphs. Four. Quote, the results of the Second Great Awakening and the co-optation of virtue paved the way in 1835 for Alexis de Tocqueville to remark, quote, there is no country in the whole world in which the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America, end quote. And it was, continued de Tocqueville, quote, a form of Christianity which I cannot better describe than by styling it a democratic and republican religion, end quote. Charles Grandison Finney, 
the most famous revival preacher in America since Edwards, rushed to claim that his own Presbyterianism was but, quote, church republicanism, end quote, and even Episcopalians like Calvin Colton declared that the genius of the American Episcopal Church is republican. But this was not a political achievement. In 1864, proponents of a, quote, Bible amendment, end quote, which would have inserted an explicit recognition of Christianity into the Constitution's preamble, came close to getting Abraham Lincoln's presidential endorsement, but only close. Christian America would instead be culturally Christianized. Still, for those who believe that politics lies downstream of culture, this was no small accomplishment and all the more significant for the fact that the Constitution provided a comparatively spare and noncommittal framework for governing the Republic, thus allowing for a Christian culture to enjoy vast sway in the 19th century. Nor was the achievement of a Christian America the gift of the American founders or a part of the design of the American Republic. That Christianity in America arrived at a place of commanding influence in American life in the years before the Civil War was the product of a ceaseless cultural energy by Christians themselves in the decades after 1800. Never again, wrote the literary critic Alfred Kazin, quote, would there be so much honest, deeply felt invocation of God's purpose, end quote, if that influence has seemed to wane, then perhaps the solution will lie in the renewal of that energy, that invocation, that culture, rather than in a myth. So there you go, briefly, and there's much more you can read. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. Check out the whole article, by all means. Here is a response from January 10th, 2023, written by Miles Smith over at adfontesjournal.com. Here is his reply. Alan C. Gueltzo has a valuable essay on late colonial and early republic history up at Desiring God. Gueltzo is one of the great Lincoln scholars and among the best Christian historians of his generation. The premise of the article is that the United States was not particularly Christian. He uses as evidence John Randolph's lament about American ungodliness and prominent Presbyterians, noting that college students were not devout or pious. Gueltzo also posits that republicanism itself obliterated the hierarchies historically associated with Christian societies. Quote, to the extent that the Enlightenment banished all notions of hierarchy from the physical universe, it also, quote, banished all ideas of hierarchical government and with it all the apparatus associated with such government, including religion, end quote. A republic didn't need monarchy and instead, quote, based itself entirely upon human longings, human morals, and human consent, not divine ones, end quote. American views on republicanism, it should be noted, were not necessarily synonymous with those of the Enlightenment philosophes or their chief devotee in the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Gueltzo himself notes that Massachusetts Congressman Fisher Ames, quote, was disgusted by the secular optimism of Republican ideas since they encouraged, quote, the dreams of all the philosophers who think the people angels, rulers, devils, and that man is a perfectible animal, and all governments are obstacles to his apotheosis. This nonsense is inhaled with every breath, end quote. The American Republic, Paul Rahi wrote in his opus, Republics Ancient and Modern, did not have a judicially defined order, but that did not mean that republicanism did away with formalistic societal orders or societal hierarchy. James Wilson, one of the Constitutional Convention's most active members, argued that government served as the framework to maintain society, Quote, in the just order of things, government is the scaffolding of society. And if society could be built and kept entire without government, the scaffolding might be thrown down without the least inconvenience or cause of regret, end quote. 
Government was, quote, highly necessary, but it is highly necessary to a fallen state. Had man continued innocent, society, without the aids of government, would have shed its benign influence even over the bowers of paradise, end quote. While the American Republic did not formalize Christian moral traditions, Republican society in the new United States maintained and sustained traditional natural hierarchies. In fact, government necessarily maintained hierarchy and natural order because fallen man could not do so without the institutional framework of the state. Skipping on down a few paragraphs, the very last paragraph, Miles Smith writes, had Jefferson's and Murat's predictions been made in 1760, Knowles stated they might have reflected a real possibility. By the time of the American founding, it was too late. America was becoming Christian and evangelical. Quote, the central religious reality for the period from the revolution to the Civil War was the unprecedented expansion of evangelical Protestant Christianity, end quote. In fact, quote, no other period of American history ever witnessed such a dramatic rise in religious adherence, and corresponding religious influence on the broader national culture, end quote. Early national America wasn't a Christian nation, but it was certainly becoming an evangelical society. Why is this significant? Why does this matter? Why is this important? Why should you care? Well, briefly, I finished up Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans, the foundations of Western civilization this morning. Professor Timothy Schutt, with the Modern Scholar series, goes through a brief overview, relatively brief overview, of what these three civilizations have passed down to us. And of course, it goes without saying, Christianity, as we know it in the West, was the outgrowth of the influence of the Hebrews, the Greeks, and the Romans. And America took the idea of these things being combined, melded, mixed together in juxtaposition with each other in a distinctly Protestant direction. And if it had not been so, we would not have the United States of America. It would not exist. The world would not be as it is now. You could not have the buildup of human civilization, the promotion of human flourishing, the promotion of this idea of human rights, the idea of a republic with democratic institutions and a separation of powers. You cannot have, as we recognize it, without a decent respect for the opinions of Christians, more specifically. The Declaration of Independence has that excellent phrase, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind, but it was a decent respect for the opinions of Christians in particular, Protestant Christians in particular, which was at the forefront of the Founding Fathers' minds and their discourse, right on up to Abraham Lincoln and through into the 20th century. In fact, it was that distinctly American Protestant notion of community life, family life, political life, which during the Cold War, Presidents Eisenhower and Reagan fell back on. 
to say, this is the difference between us and the Soviet Union. Increasingly, oddly, perversely, with presidents like Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, it would be ridiculous for America as it currently is styling itself on the world stage and here at home to say what differentiates us from communist China or Putin's Russia is our Christianity. Something has changed markedly. There's no denying it. If America never was in any sense, a Christian nation, in any sense, a Protestant political institution on the world stage. If America never was, in any sense, a Christian nation, then how is it that as Christianity is pushed further and further to the margins in public life, as we now inhabit what some call negative world, where expressing Christian faith publicly incurs a penalty. It's not just neutral. It's not just one among several religions that people adhere to. No, it's the least of all religions. It's the worst of all religions. It's likened to white supremacy and colonialism and imperialism and the oppression of women and people of color. One more thing to repent of and to tear down and to abolish Increasingly, what the left has instituted here makes all the clearer that America was formerly closer to a Christian nation. I don't think anybody can deny that. As always, he who defines the terms of a debate typically can win the debate. So depending on how you want to define Christian nation or Christian nationalism, you could say, well, no, America was never that. You could say... It was never the case in the history of the world that all of the people of a given country were worshipers of the Lord their God in spirit and in truth, genuine. But then you could also say, if you go back to ancient Israel, God himself in giving instructions to Moses and Aaron, say to the people this or that, God himself baked into the laws the expectation that his people would disobey. He gave warnings. There was recently a news item over at Not The Bee about a book of curses. So archaeologists believe that they have found the ancient tablet from Mount Ebal that contains a curse exactly as Moses instructed the Israelites to write and to bury in Deuteronomy. And on the neighboring mountain, there's supposed to be a similar book of blessings Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Now, how can it be that God sets life and death, blessings and curses before Israel on the front end, knowing full well that sometimes they will obey and they will be faithful and they will live and they will be blessed. And other times they will disobey and they will turn away and they will worship other gods and they will be corrupt and they will be cursed. And yet in our day, the political debate among Christians is whether America was ever a Christian nation if it isn't right now. You might as well go back into the Old Testament and say, 
because God gave Israel over to Babylon and Assyria, therefore Israel was never his people. No, he says they were his people and he was their God. They would be his people and he would be their God and God fulfilled his promises and there were blessings. And just because those blessings were abandoned and held in contempt and grumbled against and discarded by subsequent generations, that doesn't mean that there was no generation that sought the Lord, followed after the Lord, honored the Lord. Nor would it mean just because you could find some bad apples, some bad characters in every generation who were being wicked and depraved, therefore in a Howard Zinn type treatment of history, you would say the whole generation was like this guy. You find the worst possible representative sample and then cherry pick details and then you've got a Howard's in treatment of the Old Testament. But that's not what God says. And quite frankly, I'll take God's word over the likes of a Howard's in. I'll take God's perspective on righteousness exalting a nation as if that's possible. Sin right now is a reproach to our people. Righteousness is not exalting this nation. But Alexis de Tocqueville in 1831 wrote extensively, his democracy in America is absolutely worth your time. Pick up democracy in America and pick up the city of God while you're at it. And you will have a renewed appreciation for the influence of Christians in Rome, 1500 to 2000 years ago, and the influence of Christians in the United States of America, 150 to 250 years ago. But it's just like this museum exhibit in Denver. All of what I'm saying is considered problematic now. And so it doesn't matter if it's true. It's a problem for people who want to do their own thing now. Part of the reason why my oldest son is named Josiah is because I read about King Josiah in the Bible in this whole restoration, speaking of fixing up buildings, doing renovations. In Josiah's time, they were renovating the temple. They were restoring it. It had fallen into disrepair and it needed fixing up. And here's this boy king. And they bring to him a copy of the law that was found hidden in the temple as they were renovating. And what's significant about that is it had been hidden because there were wicked kings who turned the hearts of the people away from God and led the people into worshiping false gods and into disobeying the Lord their God, to the point that you had to hide a copy of the law because it might be destroyed, because it was deemed problematic. And yet here was a copy of the law, and it was brought to Josiah, and then it was read. And when he heard the words of the law, he realized to his horror that this was not what the people had been doing. What God had told them to do is not what they had been doing. What God had told them to not do it was exactly what they had been doing systematically at every turn, every chance they got, in part because of his forefathers. And so ironically, it might require a bit of us recognizing exceptions to rules, again, like I was talking about with Numbers chapter 6 and the Nazarite vow versus what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, long hair on a man is shameful, except when it's not, except when you're a Nazarite and you're making yourself consecrated to the Lord your God. Honor your father and your mother in the Lord for this is right, unless Jesus says that a man who doesn't hate his father and his mother compared to his love for Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. It's not worthy to be Jesus' disciple. 
It's an open secret that the baby boomers have wrecked this country. It's an open secret. They are, I think you could compare, generally, not all, but generally, to be likened to the wicked kings who ruled over Israel. And the reason why my oldest son is named Josiah is because when my wife and I found out that we were pregnant with him, or she was pregnant with him, I wasn't pregnant, men can't get pregnant, by the way. But when we found out that she was pregnant with him, I got to thinking about the example of King Josiah in the line of David. He followed after his father, David, which is to say he followed after the Lord. He followed the example of his father, David, which is to say he's abiding by the honoring your father and your mother thing. But the nearest example to him generationally was not such a good example. It was not, not an example that he could follow. I mean, even just look him up on Wikipedia. Ammon was his name. He was the 15th king of Judah, who according to the biblical account, Wikipedia tells us, succeeded his father Manasseh of Judah. Ammon is most remembered for his idolatrous practices during his short two-year reign, which led to a revolt against him and eventually to his assassination in 641 BC. Ammon was the son of King Manasseh of Judah and Meshulameth, a daughter of Haruz of Jotbah. Although the date is unknown, the Hebrew Bible records that he married Jedida, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. Following Manasseh's death, Ammon began his reign of Judah at the age of 22 and reigned for two years. The Jerusalem Bible describes Manasseh and Ammon as two wicked kings. Biblical scholar and archaeologist William F. Albright has dated his reign to 642 to 640, while Professor E.R. Thiel offers the date 643 to 642 to 641-640, which is potato potato. Close enough. These dates, Thiel's dates, are tied to the reign of Ammon's son, Josiah, whose death at the hands of Pharaoh Necho II occurred in the summer of 609, the battle in which Josiah is said to have died, which is independently confirmed in Egyptian history, places the end of Ammon's reign 31 years earlier in 641 or 640 and the beginning of his reign in 643 or 642. The point here is Josiah, in order to turn the hearts of his people back to Yahweh, their God, had to repent of his father's wicked rule and his grandfather's wicked rule. So also, look at the sexual revolution, look at the legalization of abortion and birth control, look at no-fault divorce, look at increasingly the normalization of pedophilia, look at the way that we are standardizing our expectations with regards to the self-harm of public school children up to and including suicide. You might prevent them with all your security measures from shooting up the school. Are you going to be able to prevent them from committing suicide if they despair of life itself because of the garbage education you're giving them in the public schools? The stats don't look promising. This is a sign that our country has turned away from God. And we know that these stats are not fixed throughout our entire history. We know that these things have not just been the way it's always been. If we read history, look at de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Read his description of the character of the American people and recognize that his descriptions could not rightly describe the character of the American people today. Sure, there are some. Again, there are exceptions, right? We don't say that there are no exceptions just because there's a rule or that there are no rules because there are exceptions. But 
generally speaking, the character of this generation, the baby boomer generation, generation X, the character of these generations has been very poor, very self-righteous and self-indulgent in a word, very selfish, very self-absorbed. Ironically, my generation, the millennial generation has been characterized as being overprotected in our formative years. But if you listen to Strauss and Howe, the current crisis that we are in right now, we are in a crisis, a national crisis right now, economically, socially, politically, theologically, in all ways. And all it would take would be a spark and we would be in World War III. Our having been overprotected actually was just another form of selfishness on the part of the baby boomers and Gen X and the silent generation. What we're going to have to come to is a dusting off of God's word. And if necessary, tearing our robes and putting on sackcloth and ashes and repenting, turning away from the wicked deeds of our fathers and forefathers in so many cases and pursuing righteousness, not just grace, grace, grace that is greater than all my sins, grace that is active, faith not without works, because faith without works is dead, James says. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.